Good evening. This is Peter Coleman. Uh, I am professor of psychology and education uh, at Columbia University on faculty at Teachers College and the Earth Institute. Uh, and um, we're here today to talk about uh, peace and about the hard reality we think that we don't really know much about peace. We don't really know much about how to measure it, how to create the conditions where it fosters. It's more likely to be to thrive. Um, I have two guests with me today. I have Kyung Mazaro, who is the research coordinator uh, at the Advanced Consortium of Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute. Kyung, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And I have Josh Fisher, who is a postdoc and uh, an instructor in multiple programs at Columbia University, but he's a postdoc at the Earth Institute, uh, and he also works actively with the Advanced Consortium as well. Josh, thanks for coming. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Uh, the three of us have been talking and working on uh, uh, the idea of peace and what is it and do we know much about it for a while now in different capacities. Um, and this was this show was somewhat inspired by uh, an event yesterday that was put on by the consortium, which is we call AC4, um, which was a day-long event on, on sustainable peace uh, that took place uh, at Teachers College with uh, uh, information sessions from a lot of groups around the university, with uh, poster sessions, students who are doing research, uh, workshops. And then it culminated in the launching of a book, uh, a new book on complexity science and conflict and peace. Um, and most um, notably, uh, we had Lema uh, Bowie, who is the 2011 uh, Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She's a Liberian activist and social worker and has been very actively involved in uh, engaging women in participatory peace processes in conflict zones around the world. She's an extraordinary speaker and, um, and uh, an inspiration. And one of the things that she began with in her remarks yesterday was talking about the fact that even though we study peace, we talk about peace, we supposedly built the UN to be oriented towards world peace, um, there's money in it in research, there's money in the practice, NGOs all over the world are doing it. Um, she sort of asked the question, so, you know, how are we doing? And uh, from her opinion, uh, that I would somewhat share, uh, not very well, that there's still misery around the world in different pockets, um, particularly she talked about Africa and a lot of the challenges in Africa, um, and that it seems like peace eludes us. And so uh, what we've been talking about is why. And um, because we're here at, at Columbia University, we study this thing that we call peace. Um, and one of the things we suggest is that um, part of the problem is that uh, peace is understudied, that we've spent 70 to 80 years um, having very rigorous systematic research on conflict, violence, war, aggression, uh, and thinking about peace in the context of getting us out of that, preventing war, preventing conflict, resolving conflict, um, but we don't really understand peace in and of itself. Um, and so uh, that's what we're here to talk a little bit about. Um, Josh, you want to make a comment? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, over the last 50 years, we've studied how to not be violent. We've studied how to prevent bad things from happening. But we haven't really thought in a, con in a concerted way about explicitly building peace, about ways in which we can promote 
the world we want to live in. We know how to prevent the world that we don't want. Um, but I don't think we've explicitly made it clear the, what world we do want. And I think part of that is because we all want different worlds. And part of that also is because as new elements are introduced into the world, our definition of what we want changes. And so I've been thinking a lot lately about not peace as a static state, but rather peace as a process, peace as a trajectory that we're following, peace as a method of constructively managing social dilemmas and human dilemmas, um, either the classic dilemmas that we face, um, like social injustice, economic inequality, or new dilemmas, like how to grapple with new technologies, um, new interfaces, new ways of interacting with each other. And so I think as soon as we can make peace explicit, and explicit as a trajectory, as a process, rather than some static ideal state to reach and to maintain, um, I think then we can start to make some inroads in in understanding what this thing called peace is and the, the social structures and institutions that we need to build in order to engage in that peace as a process. So when you talk about uh, peace in response to these social dilemmas, so say new technologies, um, do you mean that how we negotiate them, how we respond to them, how we take them up is can be in a more constructive way or in a more destructive, competitive way? Is that what you mean? Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, anytime there's a new, a new stimulus injected into an environment, we have to negotiate relationships with, with each other, or we have to renegotiate relationships with each other. And that can be active, or that can be just a passive negotiation process. Um, I'm interested in ways of making that a cooperative, collaborative process rather than a competitive process. Um, and I think that's what peace really is. It's, it's the, it's the mate, it's the promotion of cooperation, um, the promotion of structures that that guide us toward cooperation. So there's a there's one uh, anthropologist named Doug Fry who um, is an American, but he works. He's been in Finland for a couple of decades doing research, and one of the things he did years ago is to set out to dispel the myth that we are warlike people, we are primarily territorial, and that that's really, we're innately that way. And he's studied peaceful cultures around the world, something like 88 uh, cultures or societies, communities that are peaceful externally, and something like 77 that are internally peaceful, have nonviolent uh, methods of kind of uh, policing each other and, and sanctioning each other. Um, and he's, a, he's attempted to sort of, first of all, identify what is common across these. And, and one of the key things is a more cooperative ethos, uh, a belief in kind of taboos against uh, corporal violence, uh, physical violence uh, in the society, um, but also cooperative strategies and cooperative goals and cooperative incentives in the community so that people are encouraged to work together. Um, training or some methods or rituals of more constructive dispute management that people are, you know, are socialized to talk to each other. So there is evidence, anthropological evidence, that there are these common norms and practices and procedures and even institutions that can kind of encourage that. And there is some research on it, but it's very marginal. And it's really um, misunderstood. About f three or four years ago, 
at the Earth Institute, um, we ran a day-long meeting with people from the UN and people who study peace, uh, like Steve Kilalea, and um, who is uh, a philanthropist who funds work on this general peace, global peace index. Um, and we um, brought this group together to talk about this idea of positive peace, to move them away from a conversation of, of conflict and war and move them into this discussion of peace. And we found after a day-long discourse is that it was very difficult to do because most of these scholars um, studied peace uh, or, I'm sorry, stu right, studied peace in the context of conflict and they couldn't really change the channel and talk about, well, what, what does it look like? Ideally, if, you know, if we get there, what will it look like? Um, one, of the, one of the reasons we have taken a more um, systematic approach to the study of this is because of the, of the launch and the celebration of this thing called the Global Peace Index. Kyung, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and, and where that came from? Oh, sure. So um, the launch of the Global Peace Index happens in the context of the need to address uh, this issue of peace and security at the international level. Um, when studying social development, we usually look at goals that do not really or explicitly relate to the level of peace of conflict in countries. So um, at the beginning, at its onset, um, I believe about three or four years ago. 2007, I think. 2007, launched, right? Yeah. So um, this index was designed to not only showcase the costs of conflict, but also the potential of peace to promote well-being and economic development. So this is how it started, um, which explains why at the beginning the index mostly um, focused on the costs of conflict and how they related to um, economic development. So let me just give a quick illustration of the difference between what we call positive peace and negative peace. So um, there's research out of Seattle that has been conducted for about 30 years now on divorce and marriage. And uh, this group by, run by John Gottman and his team there were interested in studying the, the, the conditions that led to divorce. And so they studied um, married couples for about 15 years and they came up with a very sophisticated, highly predictive model that could predict divorce in, in, in marriages. Um, but what they realized after 15 years of study is that their model didn't predict happiness in marriage. It only predicted divorce or non-divorce. So people could be divorced and actually still very close, or people could be married and miserable. Um, so they had to go back and study happy couples, thriving couples, in order to understand the conditions that led to that. And what that tells us, and this is a finding that's evident in other areas of science as well, is that sort of positive experiences like peace and negative experiences like conflict or the avoidance of conflict are not opposites, but they're kind of two somewhat independent states. And one, the thing we seem to know a lot about is conflict prevention, conflict mitigation, conflict resolution which is good and necessary condition for peace. But what we know much less about are the necessary conditions that sort of promote peace. And so one of the challenges, I think, with the GPI that Kyung was referring to is the, the Global Peace Index, is that its primary emphasis certainly initially was all around the measure of the presence or absence of negative things like violent crime and, and uh, injustice. Um, so, but they did, in fact, respond this year in 2013, Kyung, with a with another 
uh, index. You want to talk about that for a sec? Sure. So um, the Institute of Economics and Peace um, got a little bit of criticism from academia and NGOs when they presented and launched the Global Peace Index. Um, many um, people were pointing out that, that there is a need to also look at positive peace, not only the absence of conflict, but um, a need to look at elements that really characterize this idea of peace and a better way um, to understand what peace is and how to get there. So um, that's how um, they developed the um, Positive Peace Index, which basically um, talks to these need and um, includes a couple of elements uh, that revolve around eight pillars that, we, that were identified as they related to uh, the increase or, or decrease of conflict. So basically what they did was to identify the elements or the indicators that predicted um, less conflict. So, um, so the there team, was an attempt to, exactly. to understand mm -hmm. what peace would look like, what the kind of attitudes and structures and conditions for peace in these eight pillars. Um, but the the way that they ultimately measured it was, was flawed. Is that right? Yes, um, that's correct. So um, just to start, we could look at, uh, at the eight elements that they decided to include in this, in this index, which are very interesting. Um, they all refer to uh, the well-functioning government, so the strength of institutions and efficiency and transparency of institutions at a state level, um, a sound business environment, um, equitable distribution of resources, um, acceptance of the rights of others, and um, a high level of human capital, um, low levels of corruption, good relations with neighbors, um, and free flow of information. So these were the basic um, elements. But and that makes sense. Right? Yeah, that, that makes perfect right sense. Um, and also, it, it it also relates to the Institute of Economics and Peace' main objective of looking at the elements that promote better businesses and economic development, because all these elements really facilitate uh, businesses. A classic or a very clear example is the need for a sound business environment. That is really explicit. Um, but what we noticed when we decided to really look into the elements or the components of these eight pillars was that um, most of the items or the specific indicators that were included in these pillars didn't refer actually to um, promotive elements or um, conditions that uh, promoted well-being or peace, but they were still referring to um, preventive um, elements. So, um, for example, uh, well-functioning government, they would look at things like corruption. Exactly. Right, the presence of corruption mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to looking at the degree to which governments actually can support people, provide a, a exactly. safety net for people, et cetera. Or even participation in governmental institutions by civil society or things that are more related to this sense of well-being. So the idea mm -hmm. is right that they're trying to now expand their understanding of this thing that we call peace and not just understand the lack of crime and violence and negativity, but also understand these more positive structures and societies. But the way they're still f measuring them is actually looking at the, 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 the negative side, right? Yes. So there's still this sort of conceptual confusion. Right. So the idea of a positive – the idea of this measure as a positive peace index is actually a, a bit of a misnomer because what they're really doing is measuring the promotion of negative peace. Um, and what they – 
while they do a good job of understanding what the some of the essential elements of peace are, by measuring the promotion of negative peace, they don't go very far in telling us how to manage the dilemmas that crop up when we have a sound business environment that encourages destructive environmental practices, for mm. example, mm -hmm. and the impacts that that has on social justice and social inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of a, tru a truly positive peace index, we would need something that measures our ability to navigate those dilemmas mm. positively or productively or constructively. So the identification of what are the core dilemmas and and what are the strategies that would move us into a more kind of promotive and productive space. Mm -hmm. So there are other cr criticisms of this measure and of how people basically are thinking about peace and measuring it. One is that this is highly loaded with economists, this, this approach and this strategy, and looking pr principally at economic conditions and consequences. Yes, yeah, so, um, well, that, Peter, that makes um, sense in in that um, traditionally in political science and economics, there has been a lot of research that has linked um, economic um, openness, trade, and economic growth to stability and the absence of conflict. So there is a link between um, economic prosperity and the absence of conflict. What it's not clear is the link between economic development and the promotion of peace. Um, in fact, although the research that links um, economic development and absence of conflict is really strong, recent research has found that um, although um, elements as such as um, economic openness and increase of trade can decrease conflict, um, it can actually not um, prevent conflict or reverse conflict. So if, if um, a conflict-prone country decides to open up um, its economy and promote trade, it doesn't necessarily mean that the levels of conflict inside of a country will go down. Mm -hmm. So um, that's an interesting element, especially considering that um, at least um, more than 50% of, of the indicators that were included in the Positive Peace Index are related to the promotion of a sound business environment mm -hmm. or the promotion of economic growth and commerce. So um, the question is... Um, how important is the economic um, side of peace and the promotion of peace? And um, what other elements should we add to make this a more um, accurate index that speaks to other dimensions of um, human well-being? So if peace is, is more than having jobs, if peace is more than a focus on a sound economy, what are those elements and are those missing in uh, mm -hmm. an approach and in a set of indicators that are really privileging economics. Yes. And, uh, but, but, but at the same time, if, if we look back at the pillars, we, we also see that there is an attempt to include other dimensions. I mean, when we look at um, the pillar on high level of human capital, we'll see that there are actually um, items and indicators that look at um, the role of civil society, um, you know, participation in the, d the democratic system, but they are weighted um, in a different way. So they are not as prominent, and they don't um, play the same role when uh, when looking at the. It's interesting, even index. even calling human relations human capital is the economicization <laughs> yes, of, the <laughs> of the kind of social world, right? Yeah. Yes. There, there's another criticism of this approach, um, which is that it's crude, right? So one of, the th one of the purposes of the Global Peace Index is to 
have these indicators, and then annually they put out a report that basically ranks nations from the most to the least peaceful. And in a way, therefore, kind of names and shames certain nations uh, in terms of their peacefulness. But there have been serious methodological issues with the fact that, A, they're they're looking at at a nation level as opposed to looking more specifically. And, Josh, that's that's not unrelated to a lot of your research. Right. So my research, at least traditionally my research, looked at disaggregating, spatially disaggregating social phenomena. And what that means is looking at things as they occur in precise geographic locations rather than at the county level, the state level, the city level, um, the So looking level. more specifically and more locally. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so when we think about something like peace, peace means different things in different contexts. Peace in a business environment may mean something like structures for trade. Um, peace in, in an environmental conflict context might mean something like um, structures that promote or maintain ecosystem functioning. Uh, But trying to come up with national measures is difficult because we have to assume that the same processes work across geography, work across culture, and work across across space. Um, That's just clearly not the way the world actually functions. So what we need, I think, instead of aggregate measures of gains and losses in violence, essentially, is ways of conceptualizing what peace means at the local level, um, identifying the the real fundamental essential elements of peace, and then tailoring them to tailoring those essential pieces to the social context and the social environmental context of different locations, different cultural spaces spaces, different intellectual spaces. So at the risk of being overly critical, you know what we do want to emphasize is that, the Global Peace Index and the Positive Peace Index um, initiative is really important. It's a very impressive first step. It's taken time and money and involved, I think, 650 contributors in the initial iteration of it. Um, so it's a major initiative. Um, but because it's it's one of the first, because it's um, really sort of um, drawing a line in the sand for what how we think about peace, how we measure it, and what will hold nations and even local communities accountable to, we think it's really critical that it be that they get it right, that they have an understanding at the beginning of what's missing, what the limits to their approach, to how they measure it, to how they think about it. You know, is it overemphasizing business and economics? Is it, you know, at its current state, is it sufficient to talk about peace at a national level, or do we really need to have a more local specific understanding of what that means. And even, you know, another criticism of it is that oftentimes the infrastructure to get the information that they need mm-hmm. for the national level doesn't exist in many of these countries. So there are the countries that are more developed than others are privileged in that they, they have ways of actually assessing what they're trying to assess. So so there are many challenges to this um, to this approach. I guess the question is: So, what's the alternative? What what could we do that would be perhaps? How, how do we? How would we enhance something like this without throwing it out? Well, for me, I think one of the things to really acknowledge is the strength of this approach. The reality is that peace and violence are related to each other, but they're not opposite ends of a spectrum. 
And while we need to promote peace, we also need to prevent violence. And I think this is a really good framework for understanding the ways in which we can do that. Um, and so I think it's important to to understand its its strengths as well as its limitations. Not no index can measure everything. Um, so we need indices of violence and lack of violence and the attitudes, behaviors, and structures that prevent violence. And this is really the Global Peace Index and the Positive Peace Index are really good at at doing that. But maybe we need a different index. Maybe we need something that doesn't economize or monetize things like natural capital, social capital, things like human relations. Human relations. Right. Maybe we need solidarity in a community. Yeah. Maybe we need a multidimensional measure of peace. Maybe we need something in addition to the positive peace index. Chiang, your thoughts on what's what would be a, a solid next step? Well, I would say that um, these conversations are very important because uh, by designing an index, we're really determining what peace means. And uh, the Institute of Economics and Peace is in a privileged position because it's really determining what uh, peace will look like in the context of the post-2015 um, discussions around the Millennium Development Goals and how we're going to measure development and well-being. So um, although um, I don't think it will be possible to design the perfect index that will really um, characterize what peace is for different countries around the world, I do feel that there are ways to enrich the index and broaden the um, approach um, to peace. So even though perfection is the enemy of the very good, we could this could be made better. And it sounds like in terms of the prevention of violence and conflict, they have gotten this right. They, they've identified a set of core measures, and now what's necessary is, I think, more concerted work on the other half on the Positive Peace Index. And this was their first attempt. This was the first year out. Um, perhaps there's room for much improvement on that side. So I think we're over time. Thank you both very much for your insights in, on this, and uh, I look forward to your development of the Positive Peace Index uh, 2.0. <laughs> Thanks for a very engaging conversation. Thank you, Peter.